Fantastic. You guys are singing well this morning. You're looking well. Looking good. I mean, I can't see you with the lights, but I'm just assuming you're looking good. Why don't you turn to the person next to you and say, get ready for the Word of God get to transform your life. Whoa. No pressure. No pressure. None at all. Very good. Well, it's uh, my father-in-law, Pastor Chris, who is coming to uh, bring the Word this morning. So why don't you welcome him as he comes? Thank you. You may be seated. Thank you, guys. You can take your seats as well. Awesome job this morning. Who was here last week? Oh, hopefully, yes. Okay. Who, no, I won't ask who wasn't. I'm not taking the role. But if you were here last week, who knows that I, I, I did a naughty thing, one of several probably, um, and left a cliffhanger. You know, who, who hates watching sort of Netflix and things? Each episode just seems to be a cliffhanger just for the next one. Uh, especially at two o'clock in the morning when you know you shouldn't be watching the next episode. Um, and so uh, if you weren't here last week, you, you won't know about the cliffhanger, but I'll explain it uh, slightly as, as we go on. We're, we're looking at God's character and we've discovered lots of great things about God's character, but we're at this uncomfortable point in our explanation where, exploration where we've come across a seemingly incompatible statement about God being a God of love, but also a God of justice or judgment. And the sticking point is here in this this verse in Exodus 34, which is verse 7. And I uh, use the first part of this as my communion message, where it says, I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. I forgive iniquity, rebellion and sin. And we're all feeling pretty good about this stage. But then it goes on to say, but I do not excuse the guilty. And that's probably most of us. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children and grandchildren. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and the fourth generations. Sounds like fire and brimstone, doesn't it? You sort of think, well, hang on, what's ticked God off so much that suddenly he's changed direction in the middle of this scripture? And we talked last week about how this is actually Hebrew poetry. And the first part of the poem tells us that Yahweh is prepared to keep his covenant love basically forever. We talked about the fact that a thousand generations is actually a very long time, 30,000 odd years, and most of us don't live that long. Um, But our vision of God then is that he's primarily out to get us and he's only monitoring our behaviour so that he can catch us out. Then we've got a distorted view of God's character. And we also can see in those first couple of lines that forgiveness is something that isn't reluctantly coming from God. It actually flows from his being um, because of who he is. But then there's, there's that last part that sort of keeps us on edge. It's that grating thing. It's like, okay, well, it starts off really well, but what, is, what does this last bit mean? And so we've got to understand that somehow in that love, God doesn't excuse or not deal with the sin of individuals or families, apparently, to the third and the fourth generation. So what does it actually mean by that last bit when he says, I do not excuse the guilty. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children and grandchildren. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations. 
And so if we look at it at face value, which I believe is the most common way that when we read the Bible we look at things, we, we might come up with a scenario like this. You've got a grandpa, let's call him Grandpa Joe. And we've got his grandson Jimmy, who has just discovered all that. He's never met Grandpa Joe, but he's, he's heard all about him. And he's discovered that Grandpa Joe was a complete scoundrel, a reprobate of unimaginable proportions, whose evil deeds were absolutely sickening. I don't want to go into the details about Grandpa Joe because it is a stomach turning. He was a horror. And so we've got Jimmy, who's just discovered this about his grandfather. But Jimmy is a person of integrity, a loving husband and a father. But despite his upstanding nature, God is punishing Jimmy's dad and Jimmy for the sins of his grandfather. And he'll probably keep punishing Jimmy's kids because can't, God can't decide whether he's going to stop at the third or the fourth generation. And that's, that's one interpretation of this. And I, and I think it's, it's a, a wrong and distorted idea because this is where the idea of generational curses comes from. There are, are, are Christians out there who have taken this scripture and used it to basically tell people that the, pro the problems they're having, the, the problems they have with God at the moment are because of generational curses, that something that happened to their parents or their grandparents is affecting their relationship with Jesus Christ now because God has cursed them. And not only is this a distortion of God's character, it's downright wrong. I mean, even if we just think about the sufficiency of Christ... If, we give, if, if Christ can save our souls, what is it only when God is not cursing us? So we can see that this is probably a really distorted way of, of describing God's character. And if you've grown up in a, in, in a uh, religious background that actually encourages that sort of thing, can I encourage you to actually let go of some of that? Because I believe that that's extremely harmful. And you might say, well, it doesn't matter what I think. Who cares what you think? What does the scripture say about it? Well, I'm glad you asked. If we look further on, the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 24, verse, 24, verse 16, Moses is laying down the legal framework of the nation of Israel. And he says, Parents must not be put to death for the sins of their children, nor children for the sins of their parents. Those deserving to die must be put to death for their own crimes. Sounds fair enough. In the book of Ezekiel, God is speaking to his prophet about how he's going to handle Israel's rebellion and wickedness. And he says in Ezekiel 18.20, the person who sins is the one who will die. The child will not be punished for the parent's sins and the parent will not be punished for the child's sins. Who are the parents who say amen? Religious people, righteous people, sorry, will be rewarded for their own righteous behaviour and wicked people will be punished for their own wickedness. So it does sort of seem, unless God's contradicting himself, that he doesn't punish people for the sins of the forefathers. So what exactly is his punishing? What is he punishing here? So let's, let's go back to Grandpa Joe. And I think this is what God is saying here. He said, Grandpa Joe and his grandson Jimmy, we know Grandpa Joe's pretty bad. And, Gram and Jimmy has just discovered this. He's discovered that Grandpa Joe cheated on Grandma. He was a drinker. He's a wife beater. He uh, has heard all the stories. He was a drug dealer and a murderer. He was a, he, he's not nice. But Jimmy, Jimmy looks at Grandpa Joe and he says, wow, 
Grandpa Joe is a legend. This is a legit way to be a human being, and he follows in Grandpa Joe's footsteps. Now, if that happened, and he says, well, it's good enough for Grandpa Joe, it's good enough for me, do you think God might have something against Jimmy in this instance? Because he's actually perpetuating the sins of his grandfather. Now, let me just ask you, can you think of any story in the Bible where that might have happened? Anything at all? Possibly in Exodus chapter 32. (laughs) The story we've been looking at for the past week is exactly that. What we've got is the children of Israel have come out of Egypt and God has given them Ten Commandments. The first two are pretty easy. No gods before me, don't make idols of me. And what have they done? They've gone and made an idol of the same fashion of the Canaanite and Egyptian gods they're used to worshipping. So what have they actually done? They've taken the traditions of their fathers and their grandfathers, their forefathers, and applied them over what they've been told by Yahweh. It's not like they've, just, they've had no idea. Uh, we don't know what to do. Let's just do what Grandpa did. God has told them exactly what to do. And they've said, well, stuff Yahweh. Let's do what Grandpa did. And so we've got exactly that story. They're worshipping the golden calf because they're copying what their grandparents and their parents did in Egypt. And so when we read Exodus 43 verse 7, we've got to read it in the light of the story that it's embedded in. And the story is about children who are perpetuating the sins of their parents and grandparents, of worshipping the Egyptian and Canaanite gods in all the ways that Yahweh says are dehumanising and sinful. And so that's what I believe God is getting at here. He keeps his covenant for thousands by forgiving them, but he won't do that at the expense of his justice. He will bring his justice on however many generations keep perpetuating the same destructive behaviour until they get it. So what does this third and fourth generation thing actually mean? Well, I think the problem we have here is because A, this is poetry, and B, they're using in this thing what's called an idiom. Who knows what an idiom is? It's a Hebrew idiom, which is a, a saying that meant something to the Hebrews that doesn't necessarily mean the same thing to us. Let's have a look. Mason earlier in the year brought us a, a fabulous message about Proverbs. I, don't, I can't remember. What, did you do much in Proverbs 30? No, good new material. Uh, so if we, if we look, there are, there are four verses here in Proverbs 30 I want to look at. And Proverbs 30 verse 15 says, There are three things that are never satisfied. Uh, no, four that never say enough. And verse 18 says, There are three things that amaze me. Oh, no, four things I don't understand. And verse 21 says, There are three things that make the earth tremble. Uh, No, four, it cannot endure. And 29 says, there are three things that walk with stately stride. No, four that strut about. And you sort of think, who is this person? Can't they make up their mind? But have you noticed something about the lines there? They're they're couplets. What What does each line say? The same thing. It's just using different words except for the fact that one's three and one's four. And even the prophet Amos gets into it. Amos 1, 6, God 
Yahweh is actually speaking to his prophet. He says, for the three sins of Gaza, even for four, I will not relent. You still think God can't even make up his mind. What is this, is this three or is this four? What on earth is going on? And it's because it's a Hebrew idiom. It's, it's a saying that doesn't mean what we think it means. And so I'm going to give you a, a real-time example. Is, is, is Richard Coombe here? Richard? St- stand up, Richard. Richard is one of our faithful volunteers. We need to give him a hand right now because every Sunday... When we leave the, uh, you, can, you can sit down, Richard, it's all right. Um, we, we leave the ministry centre in a mess. Richard is the person who comes in during the, during the week and cleans up your mess. Our mess, sorry. Um, and he does that unfailingly without complaint and does a, a marvellous job. So thank you, Richard. But what I want to, apart from recognising his, his uh, great efforts as a volunteer, I just want to give you an example of a, a text conversation I had with Richard a couple of months ago, because sometimes uh, we need him to get there early, um, because uh, Vicky and I have something on in the afternoon. And so I, I sent Richard a text message. I said, hi Richard, can you come to the ministry centre a bit earlier this morning, say about 9.30? And Richard replies with clear English, no David Murrays. Now, it's obvious by my response that I understood this message, but who thinks that this is, I mean, if, you, if English was your second language and you looked at that, you'd, th- you'd think, has Richard refused and sworn at me by the name of some deity that he worships? <laughs> no, by Buddha. Or, I mean, what's this... And, but we know, as Australians, we know that no David Murray's, if you're old enough anyway, is slang for no worries. <laughs> so you do have to be old enough to know that. I mean, I can remember my maths teacher in, in uh, second year high school using the term no David Murray's, and that was a long time ago. Um, but the funny thing about that is no worries is slang for Yes. So we have three layers of idioms here. Richard could have just said, yes, exclamation mark. No, no, it's not a problem, I'm happy to come. But instead he wrote, no David Murray's, because what's the fun in just saying yes? <laughs> but this is what's happening here. The, the, the writers of Exodus have actually tr- highlighted what they're trying to say, and, it, and the same in Proverbs and, and in Amos. It's a, a Hebrew saying which basically says that I'm here to take your sin, but if you keep perpetuating the sins of your forefathers, I'm going to be on your case for as long as it takes to the threes and the fours, however long. It's, it's sort of saying that whatever number I'm using here, that's the number I mean. And so it's like, yeah, th- there's a few things I don't understand. Uh, there could be a few more than that, but th- I don't understand them, all right? It's whatever it is what it is. And it's not asking you to, to sort of count the numbers and say, well, come on, is it three or it's four? It's probably a hundred. There's lots of things I don't understand. Um, but it, it's, it's a, a phrase, a turn of phrase that they're using. And so in the setting of this story, there's a whole bunch of Israelites, the Levites, Moses, and, and a whole bunch of others who owned up to what they'd done. And when they did that, Yahweh took on the weight of their sin. But there's a whole bunch of Israelites, and we're told their number's about 3,000, who don't care. 
They say, this is what we're going to do, this is what we want to do, and uh, go away. We're not interested. And so Yahweh says, fine, that's quite all right. If that's what you want to do, you don't want me to carry your sin for you. I'm going to let you carry it yourself. And that means that you'll face the consequences of your own stupid decisions. You don't have to, but if you choose to, you will not excuse the guilty. And so there are two main points that come from our understanding of this scripture about having a relationship with a loving and a just God. The first part is the fact that the first part of verse 7 where he says, I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations and I forgive iniquity, rebellion and sin, is not an invitation to live however we like, continually sinning and living a life of rebellion. Because, hey, we know that God's got to forgive us. It's part of his covenant. And so we can, we can do whatever we like because we've got to get out of jail free card. And so we can live our life however we like with the knowledge that in our back pocket, if, if something happens, we can just whip it out and say, ha, I repent, sorry for everything I did, um, thank you Jesus, I'm in heaven. But God says no. He says, because if you really want God to forgive you, repentance is actually a change of direction. Repentance is actually acknowledging your wrongdoing and not doing it again. Whereas if you use your get out of jail free card, what you're actually saying is, God, I just want you to acknowledge that my sin isn't really that bad. It's, you know, it's just a little one. I only did it a couple of times. Or I only do it a couple of times a year or a couple of times a week. Or, you know, and it's, it's, not real, it's not as bad as Brendan's. I mean, gosh, or, or Nathan for that matter. Um, and it, God does not weigh sins. He takes the weight of them, but he, he doesn't have the, this idea of little, little ones and big ones. He says, repent of them all, and I will take your whole burden. But if we are not prepared to repent, then we're, we're minimising. We're saying to God, look, let's pretend that they're not as bad as you say they are. Let's, let's overlook my bad behaviour. But what God says, if you don't want to be forgiven, that's fine. But I'm not going to excuse those who keep up their wickedness and not caring about the consequences, because I am a just God. And the second thing we can learn when he says, I do not excuse the guilty. And I lay the sins of the parents upon their children and grandchildren. What we can actually take out of that is a bit of a reversal. And that it's actually a warning to us that we cannot use our family background as an excuse for our sinful behavior. Because, I mean, who's got a family background where that's a good excuse? I mean, I know some people who have got some horrendous members of their family. Sometimes it's them. <laughs> and, you know, in our, in our current cultural climate, there's, there's these key words that get thrown around, like dysfunctional. Now, people come from dysfunctional homes. Face it, people, we all come from dysfunctional homes. But it's not an excuse for us to continue in our sin just because we've come from that. Now, I know... And don't get me wrong, there are some people here this morning that I know have come from really dysfunctional homes, that have had the potential to be really damaging, that have had the potential to change their lives for, for ill, that has caused them physical, mental 
an emotional injury. And you know, if that has happened to you, then I'm deeply sorry that you've had to go through that. And admittedly, each of us, no matter what our family background is, is going to end up with a, a different set of challenges and strengths that actually come out of our family background. But in no way does God ever excuse that background for our behaviour. Because at some point, we have to own our own decisions. Unless you're a small child here that I've missed this morning, your parents do not make your decisions for you. And if they do, you need to go to them now and tell them, stop it. Because we have to own our own decisions. And so, it's our choice. No matter what our family background is, we get to choose whether we're going to perpetuate the sins of the parents or whether we're going to find freedom and let God pick up and carry those things for us and begin to heal us and change us. And that's exactly what the story of Exodus 32 and that statement by Yahweh in Exodus 34, 7 is telling us. It's a beautiful statement about how God gives real weight to the moral decisions of his people. You might think, I mean, that, that sounds wonderful, doesn't it? You, the choices you make, God honours. That is one of the most frightening things I've ever heard. Because if we decide to reject God, he will honour that. But he will visit the consequences of that rejection on us because he is just. If we take him at his word and we let him take our sin, carry that weight, then he is loving and he will carry that for us, no questions asked for as long as we want. And he will forgive as often as he needs to for the rest of our lives and for a thousand generations. But he is a just but also a loving God. The most amazing thing about this is, is, is precisely that statement. He will carry our sins for us. And when we look at the bigger picture of what we're all here for, what have we been placed on this earth for? We recognise that what Jesus did on the cross is actually the only thing that empowers us to do what we're called to do. It's where all of these attributes of God come together. It's where his love, his mercy, his grace, his compassion and his judgment come together in one place. Jesus died and rose again. So we would have the opportunity to take God at his word, to actually accept that forgiveness, that covenant forgiveness that he promises us. Jesus absorbed and carried our sin onto himself on that cross. Now the interesting thing about scripture is, I mean, who intellectually thinks that was, that was really interesting? That's, you know, we've discovered that God's loving, but if we, if we continue on our sin, he's just. I mean, who here would want to live in a world where justice doesn't prevail? If there's no justice at all, then there's no hope for our world. But if there's not love associated with that justice, then we're as lost as well. And just to, to finish with an example... And I, I, I don't think I'm telling tales out of school here. 
I talk about my grandson, who's reached that interesting age of about two, where his behaviour has become a source of um, discipline, shall we say. And he's, he's reached that point where he, he's looking at his surroundings and uh, making choices um, based on the wisdom that he has, which is a two, year, two and a bit year old is very little. Um, but I've noticed that because his parents love him, I mean, you've, you've seen them with him, there's no doubt whatsoever that he, he has loving parents. But I've seen them both in situations where he hasn't expressed that love back in, in some ways. Um, he's, he's almost at that stage where he understands that the words, I love you, have great power. And he also understands that the words, I don't love you, also can be injuring. And sometimes his behaviour is based on what he sees around him and he doesn't understand the consequences of that behaviour. And it's interesting that when that happens, he often gets a time out on the bottom step of his house. And sometimes he objects to that time out and then therefore gets more time out. But he, whenever he does something which is inappropriate, they have the choice of going home, saying, that was, that was, that was bad, you know, we, we don't like the way he behaved, but let's just forget about it. And pretend it never happened. But they love him enough to know that for him to function as a, as a complete human being, he has to know the boundaries, he has to know the consequences of his actions, either good or bad. And so they discipline him, not because they hate him, not because they want, to, they want him to be a perfect child. Well, they, perhaps they do. But, um, but because they love him enough to show him the guidelines that he needs to be a complete human being when he grows up. And that's how God treats us. He loves us, but he will not excuse the guilty because his concept of that is to actually show the guilty that repentance is the way out of that. He, he loves us the same way that we love our children and our grandchildren. He loves us enough not to overlook our sin, but to actually bring it to a place of discipline and do it out of love. God's love and God's justice are not poles apart. God's justice comes out of his overwhelming love for us. So we need to make some decisions this morning. Can I get Jord to come up? I don't believe, although it's, it's great to have an intellectual understanding of the word of God, I don't believe there's any power in the word of God unless it actually changes how we think and how we behave. So what I want to encourage you this morning, that if what you've discovered this morning is old hat, you already knew that. You thought, yeah, that, that's, well, that, that's fine. Nothing, nothing speaks to you. But if, you, if you're here this morning and you've had experiences where either people you know or yourself have been living under the misapprehension that God is cursing them or not allowing them to be the person that they need to be and can be because of some generational curse on their family 
then you need to stand up this morning and either cast that off yourself or cast it off them because that is a distortion of who God is. God does not curse us to the fourth, third and the fourth generation because of somebody else's sin. He's only concerned if we perpetuate that sin. If you're here this morning and you just struggle with the idea that God's love and forgiveness, His, His forever love, is actually for you. Because you think you've done something that God could never forgive. You're wrong. God does not have it in Him not to forgive a repentant person. It would be against His character completely to be unforgiving if you repent. It's, it's impossible. It's, it's like laws of the universe. You know, God cannot be unforgiving. And the other thing is, if, you, if you've had a, an attitude where you, you've sort of thought, well, it doesn't matter what I do, I, I can use the get out of jail free card, then you need to repent of that. I'm not going to get you out the front and say, everybody who's used the get out of jail free card, come on up the front, we're going to pray for you. That would perhaps be a bit embarrassing. Um, but I want us to think about that. We're going to pray in a moment. But before we do, the thing that I think is of paramount importance here is that we need to believe that our God is a God of forgiveness and salvation. And if we believe that, then we need to believe what it said in, in John 9, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the light. And it's only through Him that we can get to the Father. So you may be here this morning. You may have never said, I acknowledge that Jesus Christ is my Lord and Saviour. I acknowledge that if I confess my sin to Him, that He will forgive. I acknowledge that if I give my life to Him, put my life in His hands, that I am assured of that forgiveness. God makes things easy. All it requires is an invitation. He's made the first step. We just have to make the second one. We have to take a step towards God. And we do that by praying a prayer. Just saying, God, here I am. From this moment on, I'm going to take a step of faith to make you my Lord and Saviour. I'm going to get rid of my old life and take on a new life. A simple prayer starts us on a journey of discovering who Jesus is and what he wants for our lives. So before we pray about some of those other things, I'd just like to offer you an opportunity. I don't know where everybody's at this morning. But if you need to start that walk with Jesus, or if you've already started, but you've taken a sidetrack, you need to come back to walk with Him. I want to offer you that opportunity right now. So could I ask everybody just to close their eyes? And if that is you this morning, you've either never followed Jesus well, you know that you need to rededicate your life to following him this morning. I'd love to pray with you. We'll actually all pray a prayer together. But I'd like to know who here is praying this for the first time or coming back to our relationship with Jesus. So while no one's looking around, if you could just raise your hand right now so that I know who I'm praying for. And we'll pray a prayer to invite Jesus into your heart. Is there anyone at all this morning? 
raise it nice and high while no one's looking around. And we can pray together. Awesome. Can I open your eyes? Stand, please. Could have got you to stand and then open your eyes, but I know I might have fallen over if I'd done that. Let's just pray. And not just words. We need to start breaking things in our lives, in the lives of others. Too many lives are cut short or diminished or turned in the wrong direction because of our misunderstanding of what the Bible is telling us that we get, get distracted from what God's true purpose is for us. Because the devil doesn't want us to understand God's plan for our lives. He'd rather we were kept in the dark. And the Word of God reveals the light and the truth. So I just want to pray. Lord, for everybody here this morning who feels that they've been under a curse, that you have been the heavy in their lives. You've been the, the detention monitor looking to catch them out because of the sins of their fathers or their forefathers. Lord, I proclaim release right now from that unbelief. I thank you that there's a revelation that's spreading right now that you are a loving God. You are a covenant God who forgives iniquity, sin and rebellion as often as we repent of it. That nothing that has been done to us, by us, for us, by other people, has any power over our decision to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Lord, your death on the cross was all sufficient for our salvation. We don't need Jesus plus. We just need you, Lord. And so I break any wrong thinking, any bondage, any chains that are holding people back because of misunderstanding of your intent and purpose in their lives. I thank you for any friends and family who may be under that same misapprehension that Lord, we pray right now that their chains are broken, that they are released into the light, into your purpose for them, free. In Jesus' name. And Lord, I thank you that we here right now can accept that as we confess our sin, as we repent of our wrongdoings, that we know in our hearts that you are there, more than willing, eager to take our burden, to take our sin, so that we can enjoy the love, kindness and compassion that you wish to share on us. And Lord, let us not be ignorant of the consequences of being guilty. We have a choice to repent or to carry that. Carrying our own guilt has consequences. So Lord, we reject those consequences and we accept your salvation as we repent. 
every wrongdoing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. It's liberating, isn't it? To know that we don't carry inherently those things. Why don't we thank Pastor Chris for bringing the word this morning.